We're starting a new series, Genesis 1-1 today. So open your Bibles to the very beginning. Bereshith bara Elohim, eight Hashemayim ve eight Haaretz. In the beginning, God created heaven and earth. How shall we read this? By that, how shall we hear this? My wife, Shelley, my first wife, She has a book titled, I'll Love You Forever. It's a story of a mother who would sing to her son, first when he was a baby, then a toddler, when he was nine, a teenager, and throughout his life. It was a song written in her heart. And the mother sang, I'll love you forever. I'll like you for always. As long as I'm living, my baby you'll be. Well, Shelley read that to our son, Jordan, often. And every time she read it, she cried. Now, for Christmas, not long ago, Jordan gave his mom a special edition of I'll Love You Forever. And on the inside panel, Jordan wrote a personal note. He recalled how his mom would read to him the story and cry every time. Jordan knew the story as well as his mom, but he didn't cry. As a child, Jordan thought her tears were, and this is his word, weird. But now, as he wrote on the inside panel of this special gift, he was older, perhaps wiser, a father himself, and he cries every time he reads, I'll love you forever. He knows why mom cries. Same words added appreciation due to changed perspective. I would like to give you a couple of new perspectives, or at least perhaps fuller perspectives, this morning. And for the next few minutes, I'd really appreciate it if you'd give me your undivided attention. The first perspective I want to give you is a contemporary perspective. It's a perspective familiar to our world, our culture, our society. The other perspective is an ancient perspective that's not familiar to us, not common to us. The first perspective, the contemporary perspective, is atheistic. The second perspective, which is not familiar to us, which is ancient, is polytheistic. One is atheistic, one is polytheistic. 
By the way, the word theism comes from the Greek word God. Theos. So when we say theistic, we're talking about God or gods. When we're talking about atheistic, we're saying no God. Let me tell you a little about the contemporary perspective. And this occurred to me this week. I, I consulted a book on my shelf. The book by Steve Herman is titled, Everything You Need to Know About Philosophy. It sounds like a big book. I have big books on philosophy. But Herman's book is a little book. Everything you need to know about philosophy. I like little books. And sometimes it's the little books that digest and give you a bird's eye perspective. And so it's an easy reference for some of the big issues of philosophy that I'm interested in getting a quick reference on. Well, I reviewed it because I hadn't picked it up in a while, and he begins with what is philosophy and what is not philosophy. And he talks about the five branches of philosophy, metaphysics, epistemology, aesthetics, ethics, and logic. But then he turns to the meaning of life, and this I did not remember. I mean, to go right from what is philosophy and what is not philosophy to the branches of philosophy, and then bang, the meaning of life. That took me by surprise. I didn't expect that, and I didn't remember that from having read the book cover to cover. I mean, it's only that big. Why the meaning of life? Well, science can tell us what, but it cannot tell us why. Or, better, as Dr. John Polkinghorne put it, theoretical elementary particle physicist and mathematics physics professor at Cambridge University before ordination in the Church of England and awarded the 2002 Templeton Prize for Progress in Religion and the author of The Faith of the Physicist, Belief in God in an Age of Science, and Faith, Science, and Understanding. As John Polkinghorne put it more precisely, not every question that we want to ask is a scientific question. And therefore, not every question we want to ask will have a scientific answer. And so philosophy, like religion, takes up questions that science cannot answer. And the biggest question is the meaning of life. Now, Herman, in his book, introduced three views on whether life has meaning. And what was interesting to me is that the very first view comes right from Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning. The other two views are very different. Three views, but when you read the three views, you quickly realize there are only two starting points. There's the Genesis starting point, creation, created, 
And there's the atheistic starting point, uncreated. Created, uncreated. Three views of whether life has meaning. Let me give you Herman's kind of tongue-in-cheek, but description of the uncreated starting point, which is, in effect, the atheistic model. And many scientists, and I'm trying to be very careful here because many science, scientists believe in a created universe, not an uncreated one. So science doesn't necessarily settle that, although some scientists think it does, and some scientists are convinced it does not. But here's what Herman wrote. According to one scientific worldview, the whole development of human life from the 4th of July 00000000 to now has been the product of bits and hunks of matter interacting according to mechanical laws that describe the universe which is fundamentally purposeless and without value. The universe just is. According to another scientific view, apparently random developments actually seem to fall into a pattern that ultimately adheres to a cosmic design. In other words, stuff happens. And so what are we going to do? Well, philosophers represent two views. The first, which Herman gives us in his book, is Jean-Paul Sartre, who builds on the pessimism or the pessimistic atheism of Friedrich Nietzsche, and he basically says, life is without meaning. It just happened. It's, it's there. It just is. But it was not created, it just happened, and so it's purposeless. Therefore, life as, whole, as a whole is meaningless, the end of life is annihilation, and therefore our aspirations and works have no ultimate meaning. We of all the creatures are distinguished by choice. And so with this ability to choose, we can give value to life and the world around us. We can invest life with value that life lacks in itself. We, not God, are the authors of meaning. One view of whether life has meaning. The other view is that of John Dewey, who also is an atheist. John Dewey is not as pessimistic as Sartre. He's more optimistic. He believes life has real value. But proper valuation is determined through the most advanced use of intelligence. And the most advanced use of intelligence is science. The experimental method of science determines the truth of beliefs and theories. Knowledge grows. It accretes as science builds on the findings of their predecessors. And in this way we progress. Dewey argued that only scientific method could reliably increase human good. 
So, three views of whether life has meaning. The first, drawn right from Genesis. The other two, built on a view that is an extension of science that says we're uncreated. This is a cosmic accident. And out of that, there are two representative views. One that's very pessimistic, but offers you the hope of assigning value to your life through the choices you make. The other says there really is value, but you need help to determine that value. And science is the most advanced method and growing method by which to establish that there is good, reliable, reputable, dependable good in this world. Now, these are very intelligent people, and I mean that. And they are defining, in a world they believe is uncreated, a world that is without ultimate meaning. And when you originate by chance, you make your own meaning. And I would add, don't be too critical of them. Most people live one way or the other, even without doing the philosophy. Now, some of you may be saying, I hope you're thinking, because that's the uncreated model, what about the created model? You may be saying, when I look at the world, its intricate design, unfathomable complexity, and self-sustaining operation, I can't believe it just happened. There must be a maker, a creator, a designer. So I ask the question again, how shall we read this? And I think the first answer I want us to contemplate is we should read this as revelation. In the beginning, God created heaven and earth. We should read it as revelation as a towering alternative to absurdity, to meaninglessness. It's a bold and clear declaration of God and His determination to create a singular plan and purpose in motion. I need the slide of Stonehenge. Because I think Stonehenge serves to bring revelation into focus. I think once you see these stones, you recognize what we call Stonehenge. The origin of Stonehenge mystifies us, mystifies experts. I do think it's safe to say no one imagines this configuration of stones resulted from wind, rain, seismic upheaval, or other chance natural phenomena. No one doubts that Stonehenge points to a designer, to a purpose and value. It's rational, it's reasonable, it's sensible to say that Stonehenge is a work of design. 
But as Jack Collins writes, we will never likely know who made Stonehenge or why until we uncover and interpret a text from its makers. In other words, many rational, reasonable, sensible people, I'd like to count myself among them, even numerous scientists accept that the world is created and that creation demands a creator. Intelligent design is simply the argument that I just stated. Creation demands a creator. Stonehenge argues logically, reasonably, sensibly for a maker, a designer, a creator. But until we discover that designer, that purpose, all we can say is, there's a maker, a creator, and a designer. This was Paul's argument in Romans chapter 1, verse 20. As with Stonehenge, concluding there is a creator from the creation, an intelligent designer from the design does not answer the question of who or why. It takes a text from the Maker. It takes special revelation to elucidate the Creator's identity, character, and will. If Stonehenge didn't just happen, we are left with the question, what was it designed for? And creation, if we accept that it didn't just happen, we humans are left with the question, what were we designed for? We've heard two views of how we might assign value and meaning to life. Genesis was the other. Genesis is revelation. It's a text, if you will, from the Maker, from the Creator, from the Designer. Now let's go from a contemporary perspective to an ancient perspective. In the ancient Mediterranean and Middle East, there was no atheism. In fact, creation stories abound. Sumerian, Akkadian, Babylonian, Assyrian, Canaanite, Egyptian. We don't even have all of the creation accounts, but we can posit from those that are extant or that survive, that we have in part or in greater whole, there were many creation accounts. In the Akkadian and Babylonian neighborhood of peoples and tradition, for example, the best preserved and longest of the creation accounts is the Enuma Elish. Marduk, the Babylonian national god fathered by Ea, 
who understands everything, initiates a coup in the pantheon of greater and lesser gods. And if you think of a palace coup, you can rightly imagine Marduk fighting his way to supremacy and imposing his will and order among this assembly of gods and deities. And in these accounts, the subjugation of the gods mirrors the ordering of the elemental forces of nature in the creation of the world. In the Enuma Elish, Marduk proposes to create humans once he's vanquished all of his rivals in order to lighten the work of the gods. But humans, which he proposes to create, must come at the expense and punishment of a rebel deity, Kingu whom Marduk vanquished in his battle for supremacy. And so, with the approval of the assembly of the gods, they impose on him the penalty of his guilt, and I'm quoting, they spilt his blood, from his blood they created mankind. He imposed service on mankind and let the gods free. In other creation accounts, such as Egyptian, they variously present creation out of lifeless waters called new. In the predominant Heliopolis myth, Atum, the sun god, rose out of these lifeless waters, new, creating himself using his thoughts and will. And in the watery chaos, Atum found no place to stand. And in the place where he first appeared, he created a hill, a bin-bin, a, a pyramidic-type-shaped mound. And alone in the universe, alone the creative force, he created a consort out of his own shadow and other gods. He created his son, Shu, the air, and daughter Tefnut, the moisture, by spitting. Shu and Tefnut continue the act of creation and establish life and order. When Shu and Tefnut become separated from Atum and lost in the waters of Nu, Atum, who had only one eye because he's a sun god, which was removable, sent the eye in search of his children. And when the kids return, in the company of this eye, a tomb weeps in joy, and wherever a tomb's eyes hit the ground, upsprings human life. And so the creation of the world is ordered. Shu and Tefnut become the parents of Geb, the earth, and Nut, the sky. Geb and Nut give birth to other gods, Osiris and Isis, Seth, and so forth. What's interesting is in these creation accounts, there are always a multiplicity of gods, and there's always something there at the beginning. Now, the ancient may ask, what is God like? Or is there another God? But the ancient does, 
never ask, is there a God? And so we have two perspectives that I've imposed upon you. One in which we're familiar. If you turn on your television, listen to uh, an episode of the History Channel, uh, pick up a book on science or a popular magazine, we live in an atheistic world. A world that the majority of voices in the name of science say is an uncreated world. It just happened. And therefore, you have to find your own meaning in life. In the ancient accounts, there are many gods. It doesn't just come out of nothing. By the way, in the scientific model, there's there, this idea of it just occurring is not at all represented in these ancient accounts, many of which uh, we regard, we call them mythical because they're pre-scientific. But there are many gods. There's always substance. And that was the ancient model even amongst the Greeks. A static universe, a static material universe. But never the notion that there wasn't a God. And it is against this background I ask you to hear once again, in the beginning, God created heaven and earth. And I ask you, how shall we read this? And the answer is, as the revelation of God. As the revelation of God. As text from the Maker, from the Creator, from the Designer, who reveals to us His purpose and His value, who answers the question of the meaning of life. And that's what we want to explore in the next Sundays together as we're in chapters 1 through 11. These seven words in the Hebrew Bible are the foundation of all that is to follow in the Bible. The purpose of these seven words is threefold. To identify our Creator. An ancient might ask, who is the Creator? Is there another? But not does He exist. And we hear in these words the beginning of the answer, who? And why? A second purpose in these opening words is to explain the origin of our world and to tie that work of God in the past to the work of God in the future. In other words, Genesis 1.1 tells us about God. We want so much to hear about ourselves, and we will, but it begins with God. As D.A. Carson in his book, The God Who Is There, said, God simply is. God made everything that is non-God. There is only one of Him. And the first thing that we hear in the opening of the Bible 
is that God created. Bereshit, in the beginning, bara, created, Elohim, God. In Hebrew, they often put the verb in front. God created. And he created out of nothing. Ex nihilo. The word bara, as John Salehammer in his work on creation and his book Genesis Unbounded, he concedes it's virtually impossible to prove that the Hebrew word bara by itself means all that the concept of creation out of nothing entails. That would be an enormous concept to be contained in a single word. <laughs> but you need to hear about this word because bara as it's used throughout the Hebrew Bible is always and only used of God. God is always the subject. And in the view of the biblical authors, only Israel's God could have been said to have created anything. Virtually anyone could make something. The Hebrew word asah. But only God could create something. And furthermore, when the term bara is used in the, in the Bible, there is never any mention of the material from which something is created. And the object of what is created is always something new. In the beginning, God created. He created out of nothing. And he created something new. Something only he could make. He created heaven and earth. What was interesting to me when I, uh, and I'll talk more about this in, in uh, next uh, week's installment, Lord willing. But when I read this, it jumps out at me. He created heaven and earth. But when I read those, Hashemayim, everywhere else or most other places, when I read them in the Hebrew Bible, it's sky. And when I read earth, it's land. We'll talk more about that. But what we have in heavens, if, it's, it's literally heaven. Heaven and earth. We have a figure of speech that is used to express totality. It's called a merism. It's like when, you, God, when the psalmist says, God knows my rising up and my sitting down. Well, certainly the psalmist does a lot more than that. But in that expression is the totality of his life, of his comings and goings and doings. If you say, from here to there, from top to bottom... That's an expression of the totality as you understand it and you want it expressed. God created the totality of His creation. And that is the opening words. In its profound and towering simplicity is the profundity and the poignancy and the power that God is our Maker.
in the beginning. There's only one. There's not many. And there's not none. Two perspectives. The atheistic perspective was not contemporary to the writer, God's writer of these words, or the early readers of these words. They didn't believe in atheism. Their world was a world in which the voices shouted many gods. And these gods were mirroring the forces and the power of perceived creation. I would go so far as to say they're a projection of the ingenuity of a human being trying to make sense out of his or her world. I think that stands also for our contemporary world. When we want value and purpose and meaning on our own terms alone. Chesterton said, if not God, you don't end up with nothing. You end up with anything. In other words, if you don't believe in God, you don't end up believing in nothing. You end up believing in anything. Not if you accept these opening words. It's narrowing at the same time as it's freeing. At the death of molecular biologist and physicist Francis Francis Crick, Mark Stein wrote in the Atlantic Monthly, October 2004, Francis Crick was the most important biologist of the 20th century. Like Darwin, he changed the way we think of science and the way we think of ourselves. Crick and Jim Watson discovered the secret of life. That's what Crick himself said in 1953. And with the publishing of their findings in Nature magazine, DNA came into our vocabulary and our outlook on the world. And now you can't even escape it. Even I sometimes say, it's in our DNA. He also discovered the double helix structure of DNA. He unraveled the universal genetic code. Today, Crick's legacy includes the thorniest questions of our time, genetic fingerprinting, stem cell research, pre-screening for heredity diseases, the gay gene, and all other genes of the week, says Stein. As the key to the mystery of life, DNA seemed a small answer to the big picture. So Crick pushed on, advancing the theory of directed panspermia, his explanation of how life began. And I'm quoting now from the Atlantic article. And these are the words of Crick, who died in 2004. Listen carefully to the man who discovered DNA, who's been likened to the 20th century equivalent of Darwin. And I quote, the first self 
self-replicating system is believed to have arisen spontaneously in the soup. The weak solution of organic chemicals formed in the oceans, seas, and lakes by the action of sunlight and electronic storms. Exactly how it started, we do not know. The universe began much earlier. Its exact age is uncertain, but a figure of 10 to 15 billion years is not too far out. Although we do not know for certain, we suspect that there are in the galaxy many stars with planets suitable for life. Could life have first started much earlier on the planet of some distant star? Perhaps 8 to 10 billion years ago? If so, a higher civilization similar to ours might have developed from it at about the time that the earth was formed. Would they have had the urge and the technology to spread life through the wastes of space and seed this sterile planet, including our own? For such a job, he continues, bacteria are ideal. Since they are small, many of them can be sent. They can be stored almost indefinitely at very low temperatures, and the chances are they would multiply easily in the soup of, primitive, of the primitive ocean. And Stain says, we do not know. These are words that Crick used. We do not know. Uncertain. Not too far out. We do not know for certain. We suspect. Chances are. And thus the Nobel Prize winner embraced the theory that space aliens sent rocket ships to seed the earth. The man of science who confidently dismissed God at Mill Hill School half a century earlier appears not to have noticed that he had merely substituted for his culturally inherited monotheism a weary variant on Greco-Roman Norse pantheism. The gods in the skies who fertilize the earth and then retreat to the heavens beyond our reach. Dr. Crick's hyper-rationalism took 50 years to lead him around to embracing a belief in a celestial creator, cre creator of human life. But listen to what even Steve Herman in his little book says when he summarizes the first view of whether life has meaning. In the beginning, God created the universe. Out of nothing in a spectacular demonstration of mind over emptiness and matter. God, he goes on to say, is a perfect being. Omnipotent, all-powerful. Omniscient, all-knowing and omnibenevolent, all good. God created the universe according to a divine plan. Everything, including human beings, has a purpose in His plan. God, whose existence is outside the physical realm, is in a, positive, in a position to give the totality of human life a purpose because God can use human life a means to God's purposes. How shall we read this? as though meaning depended on it. As though our life depended on it. As though our purpose and value depended on it. John Polkinghorne, whom I quoted earlier, 
said one of the big differences between scientific faith and religious faith is that religious faith involves commitment of the whole person. I believe in quarks and gluons very strongly, actually. But it doesn't affect my life in any very critical way. I can't be a Christian without it affecting my life in all sorts of ways. There is a moral demand in religious belief as well as an intellectual demand which does make it more costly, more challenging, and in the end, more worthwhile. Will you stand with me? That was a lot to listen to. Maybe it sounds like a class. But I really did want to lay a little bit of a foundation. When you hear those words, and you're kind of coming from the echo chamber of our own society, or when you hear those words and you're coming from an echo chamber that we try to understand that is so different than our own and so very ancient, compared to our scientific world, it still helps you to hear those words powerfully and poignantly. And I, I ask you to be reading in Genesis. Read the first 11 chapters at a sweep. Hear what God is saying. Listen to what He's revealing. Because He's revealing something that has everything to do with how we judge value, and meaning in life. For me, philosophically, I minored in philosophy. But years ago, this thing was settled for me at the cross with the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That to me is the irreducible minimum. That is my starting point. I met Jesus before I met the God of Genesis 1-1, if you will. Before I read Genesis 1-1. And that's where, although we've not talked about Jesus ostensibly and prominently this morning, as we close, we're going to sing a closing song. The God who said in the beginning, didn't just set this thing in motion and tell us how you could win His approval or discover His meaning. He sent His one and only Son because the same good and love that is demonstrated in Genesis 1-1 is epitomized and consummated in the cross and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So this morning, if you've been, maybe the Lord's been speaking to you and uh, it may be a jump in your own heart to say, wow, I hear John talking to me about Jesus and I, I'd like to know more about Him. I want to meet Him. I want to know Him. I want to ask Him to be my Lord and Savior. If that's what God is saying to your heart, we invite you to come as we sing these songs. Maybe you'd like to come forward for prayer to intercede for a friend, to pray on your own behalf. I'm going to be here with the elders and pastoral staff we invite you to come. Whatever the Lord has on your heart, we invite you to respond. If you'd like to pray with us, we invite you to come.
This has been a production of Grace Community Church of Visalia. For more information, go to our website at www.gccvisalia.org or for more sermons, go to gccvisalia.org slash podcast.